Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, November 5th, 2021. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Almost since it began last week, <clears throat> excuse me, I've been listening to the Charlottesville Unite the Right lawsuit trial, in which our good friends Michael Hill and Michael Tubbs are co-defendants, as is the League of the South, an organization of which we are proud members. Today, Michael Hill was called to the stand, and I listened to most of his testimony. I must say that out of all of the defendants who have been examined so far, those which I've heard, which is most of them, Michael Hill is the only one I have heard who has not cowered before the Jewish persecutors nor back down from any of his past statements or his stated principles, or the stated principles of the League of the South. He was serious. He did not, as some of the so-called alt-right leaders have done, claim that his statements were jokes or anything pitiful like that. For that, regardless of the outcome of the trial, This day, we are proud to have Michael Hill as our friend and as the deserving leader of the League of the South. On the other hand, the Jewish prosecutors played their own part very well as the cunning devils and false accusers that they truly are. You could literally hear the hatred which the prosecutor had for Michael Hill in his voice as he questioned him while Michael openly and bolded admitted what the League of the South stood for and the reasons for the actions that were executed by its members in Charlottesville. Sadly, Heimbach, Cantwell, and especially Spencer had all seemed to wallow, waffle, and backpedal on matters of principle when they were being grilled by the Jews. That being said... That being my first impression of the trial that I've shared so far, I will move on. And this is part three of our commentary on the Song of Songs. It is titled, The Conclusion. The subtitle being, Two Seed Line is Biblical Truth. Throughout the last few chapters of the Song of Songs, we have seen allegories which describe Sexual activity between lovers as the eating of fruit from trees and also from a garden. In Song Chapter 2, the bride described her husband as an apple tree and professed eating of his fruit, where it was explicit that the couple had been in the act of embracing one another in a bed, the husband having fallen asleep. Then, in a subsequent encounter, in Song Chapter 4, the husband described the bride as his garden. He described the wonder of her fruits, and the bride explicitly invited him to eat of them. Here, at the beginning of Song Chapter 5, that encounter is not yet finished. With that, we made assertions that the identification of these similes and metaphors as euphemisms for romantic sexual activity is irrefutable. Therefore, further comparing the similar metaphors which are found in the Epic of Gilgamesh, a work which is approximately contemporary to the time of Abraham and which was still known to Judeans at the time of Christ, and which also explicitly employs such metaphors in reference to sexual activity, and then also comparing the account of the temptation in Genesis chapter 3, it clearly becomes manifest that Genesis chapter 3 is describing an illicit act of sex in the garden as Eden, in the Garden of Eden, as having been the cause of the fall of man. So we may conclude that here in this romantic and even 
Erotic love poem. The wisdom of Solomon, and I say wisdom there with a small w, gives us the understanding by which we may honestly interpret the otherwise enigmatic allegories of trees and fruit in Genesis chapter 3, as Solomon had also done in different ways in his other writings, in wisdom and in Proverbs. There has long been debate in Christian identity circles over the language and allegories of Genesis chapter 3, and in the Song of Songs, the debate is settled. While we have already discussed passages in Proverbs, where Solomon had described sexual activity with a harlot as bread eaten in secret, among other things, in Wisdom chapter 3, Solomon had described wicked men who took foolish wives, ostensibly meaning that they made foolish choices when they took their wives. Therefore he spoke of them further and said that their offspring is cursed. Wherefore blessed is the barren that is undefiled which has not known the sinful bed, she shall have fruit in the visitation of souls. And blessed is the eunuch, which with his hands had wrought no iniquity, nor imagined wicked things against God. This is in the context of offspring that are cursed, and which those who have known the sinful bed For unto him shall be given the special gift of faith, and an inheritance in the temple of the Lord more acceptable to his mind. So we see that it is better to not have children than to give birth to bastards. We know that this is the meaning, because a little further on he wrote, As for the children of adulterers, they shall not come to their perfection, and the seed of an unrighteous bed shall be rooted out. Then, in Wisdom chapter 4, he continued, and he wrote, Better it is to have no children, and to have virtue, for the memorial thereof is immortal, because it is known with God and with men. When it is present, men take example at it, and when it is gone, they desire it. It wears a crown, and triumphs forever, having gotten the victory, striving for undefiled rewards. But the multiplying brood of the ungodly shall not thrive, nor take deep rooting from bastard slips, an allusion to plants, plants as a metaphor for people, nor lay any fast foundation. For though they flourish in branches for a time, trees, as a metaphor to a multiplying brood, trees as an allusion to a race of people, yet standing not last, they shall be shaken with the wind, and through the force of winds they shall be rooted out. The imperfect branches shall be broken off, Their fruit unprofitable, not ripe to eat, meaning that you shouldn't have sexual relations with bastards. Yeah, meat for nothing. For children begotten of unlawful beds are witnesses of wickedness against their parents in their trial. Not that the children are going to testify. Their very presence testifies. So not only did Solomon condemn race mixing, but he compared the offspring of such adulterers to trees, branches, and fruit, which when understood in the context of his other writings, both here and in Proverbs, also gives us further insight into the meanings of the metaphors employing descriptions of trees and fruit in Genesis chapter 3. On many other occasions, 
nations, races, and families of people. I should say on many other occasions. Yes, I have it later. I'm sorry. On many other occasions, nations, races, and families of people are frequently described as plants, trees, and fruit elsewhere in Scripture. In the prophets, as well as in the parables and allegories in the Gospel of Christ. Therefore, our conclusion concerning the meaning of Genesis chapter 3 comes not only from many of the biblical scriptures in the New Testament, which we have elucidated on many occasions, but from the whole body of works attributed to Solomon, the wisest of all men. I think Ted Wheeland might catch on to that. But there is always the question as to why Adam and Eve were permitted to eat of all the trees of the garden, if the trees were races of people. However, a more careful reading of the instructions to Adam in Genesis chapter 2 reveals that only certain of the trees were metaphors for races of people. This is because the trees which Adam was permitted to eat grew out of the ground as it states in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. But two other trees mentioned there were only in the midst of the garden and not growing out of the ground. Only they are allegories for people. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is associated with the serpent. And we learn from Christ in the Revelation that the same serpent was the leader of the rebellion of fallen angels, which must have taken place before the creation of Adam, but was not revealed in Genesis. The Nephilim, or fallen ones, a term translated as giants, appear again in Genesis chapter 6. Then, in the Gospel of Christ, he reveals that he himself is the tree of life. Where in John chapter 15 he attests that I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman. And speaking to his disciples a little later on in that chapter that I am the vine, ye are the branches. So in Revelation chapter 22, the tree of life with 12 types of fruit is depicted as growing on the banks of a river which proceeds from out of the throne of God. Ostensibly, the twelve fruits represent the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. So these two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, correspond to the race that would come of Adam and the race of the fallen angels. Adam was given one law, which is not to eat of that other tree. When he transgressed that law, he was certain to die, as was his wife. That same law was transgressed again in Genesis chapter 6. And for that, the flood of Noah came upon the land, destroying most of the descendants of Adam. We know that this is so, that this is the reason for the punishment of man in both Genesis chapters 3 and 6, because, as Paul of Tarsus had explained in Romans chapter 5, sin is not imputed where there is no law. Therefore, since only one law was given to Adam, which was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest he die, and it is the transgression of that law for which he died, that being the only law in effect in Genesis chapter 6, we see it is the same law for which the flood had come after the children of Adam began to mingle in fornication with the fallen angels, or Nephilim. Some may protest and claim that Cain was punished for his crime, but that is not true. There having been no law, Cain being a murderer, was never punished according to the law. Rather, Cain was only denied a privilege. As Yahweh, being Lord of all, being the righteous owner of heavens and earth, which includes the land upon which Cain had walked, 
only deprived him of profiting from the land which he owns. So Cain was told, When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. That is not a punishment. It is only a revocation of something which was previously granted to him freely. But it was not the act of sex alone which caused the fall of man. If that were the case, then when Yahweh God created Adam, as it is described in Genesis chapter 1, he would not have given him the instruction to be fruitful and multiply in Genesis 1.28. Then, in Genesis chapter 2, Yahweh would not have created Eve so that she and Adam could become one flesh, being a helpmate by which he could become fruitful and multiply. So that shows that it was not merely sex, but an act of illicit sex, which caused the fall of man, which is what Genesis chapter 3 describes. Once all of this is understood, it is also irrefutable. The two trees are still here with us today. We are often warned of them in the gospel, and if one is not of Adam, one must be a branch or shoot from that other tree. Anyone who denies these teachings Ted Wheeland, is working, wittingly or unwittingly, to deceive men and lead them astray by convincing them that there is no seed of the serpent, which in turn leads them into committing blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. For this, the world of today awaits the fire and fury of Yahweh, because just as Christ had said, as it was in the days of Noah, so it would be at the coming of the Son of Man. Every plant which Yahweh did not plant shall be rooted up and cast into the fire. And in that, we see that what we call two seed line is indeed biblical truth. These last paragraphs were actually inspired by a recent encounter with some followers of Ted Wheeland. But what we call true, what we call two seed line is true. Even if most of our predecessors did not have this complete picture, which I have attempted to describe here in a few short paragraphs. Those who deny it are working for the devil purposely or not. And if they stand by it and entrench themselves in their lies, they must be working for the devil purposely. Now, as we proceed with chapter 5 of this Song of Songs, we are in the middle of the scene which began in chapter 4, where after the husband had described his bride as a garden and extolled the wonders of her fruits and her scents. She invited him to partake of her sexual pleasures, where she exclaimed, Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. Now this next chapter opens as the husband responds to that invitation. In verse 1, Song chapter 5. I am come into my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. Now, I'm not going to discuss the results of mixing wine with milk. The husband has already described his bride as a garden and she has already invited him to come and eat of its pleasant fruits. So here the husband attests to having done that, with references to milk and honey. These are also apparent metaphors, which stand as euphemisms for sexual pleasure. But the allusion to the children of Israel, having been promised a land of milk and honey by Yahweh their God, their collective husband should not be overlooked. 
Now the last clause of this verse should have been separated by the translators. And in the King James Version, it was not. Thus we read, after a colon following the word milk, Eat, O friends, drink, yeah, drink abundantly, O beloved. Neither is this an invitation for others to partake of the bride. Here we have an exclamation, which apparently emanates from the husband, but which is made in reference to the couple, the husband and the bride, as a celebration of the figurative feast in which they were about to partake together. But the words are not necessarily uttered by either husband or bride. It is also unlikely, because of the setting, that they can be attributed to the chorus. Rather, they seem to be an editorial exclamation from the viewpoint of a narrator, an omniscient narrator, or author of the work. So the New American Standard Bible separates the clause from the sentence which precedes and translates it to read, Eat, friends, drink and imbibe deeply, O lovers. Likewise, the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible does the same and renders the sentence to read as a pair of exclamations. Eat, friends, and drink. Yes, drink your fill, you lovers. So it is fully evident that the friends are the lovers themselves, and not any other parties. Later in this chapter, in verse 16, the bride, in her description of the husband, informs the chorus that he is indeed both her friend and her lover, or her beloved. Apparently, the exclamation also ends the scene. So this first verse of song chapter 5 may have been better placed at the end of chapter 4. Furthermore, this is also the point where the copy of the song in the Dead Sea Scroll labeled 4Q Canticles B ends. And as the introduction to the Song of Songs in the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible explains, there is evidence in the manuscripts that it may have been intentional. That scroll, 4Q Canticles B, is also the copy of the song, which they further explained as having scribal errors and Aramaic words in the text. One reason offered for its having been omitted from that scroll is the erotic content which the section contains. This is plausible as it begins with the scene of lovemaking where the husband had announced that his bride was a garden. And it ends with a similar scene where the husband is depicted as feeding among the lilies of his garden, which is his bride. And I'm sorry, I'm confounding two scrolls here. I'm not clearly stating this. I had no opportunity to edit it, but that's fine. Force Q Canticles B ends here. At Song 5, verse 1, which should probably at the end of chapter 4. 4Q Canticles A wants all of the text, which is from 4.8 through 6.10, and my description had confounded them. I was transitioning from one scroll to another here in my notes without clear demarcation. So 4Q Canticles A, missing all of the scroll from 4.8 through 6.10, often that is attributed, or that one possibility, one possible explanation for that, is attributed by the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible to the erotic material that it contains. I don't necessarily agree with that, but I will withhold my comments on that until we get to Song of Songs chapter 7 where there is just as much erotic material where the same 
metaphors and allegories are repeated again. So now, with, and, and I must add that even though 4Q Canticles B in the Dead Sea Scrolls ends here, and 4Q Canticles A is missing the section from Song chapter 4 verse 8 through chapter 6 verse 10, 4Q Canticles A does attest to the balance of the song from Song chapter 6 verse 11, and also the Masoretic text and the Septuagint, of course. So now, with verse 2 of chapter 5, which begins a new section, which is fully attested in the Masoretic text, the Septuagint, and the Latin Vulgate, there is a new scene, and the bride is once again fantasizing as she longs for her now-absent lover. So from verse 2 of Song, chapter 5. I sleep, but my heart wakes. It is the voice of my beloved that knocks, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my undefiled. For my head is filled with dew, and my locks with the drops of the night. I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I have washed my feet. How shall I defile them? Now it seems that where it says, Open to me, my sister, my love, my undefiled, that the bride is attributing those words to the husband in her dream. But the bride is responding, saying, I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I have washed my feet. How shall I defile them? It is evident that the husband did not hear these words. But rather, they are only in the thoughts of the bride as she fantasizes, as she is once again longing for her husband. But next, she imagines that he is coming for her. And in verse 4, she says, My beloved put in his hand by the hole of the door, and my bowels were moved for him. We may say that her inward parts or even feelings were aroused on account of him. So she continues, I rose up to open to my beloved, and my hands dropped with myrrh, and my fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh, upon the handles of the lock. Now, right there in verse 5, we see that the added words, where the King James Version adds the words of the door, it is justified. I don't quite understand how ancient doors were constructed. I don't know if any doors this old have actually survived because they're made of wood. <laughs> so so they are made of a biodegradable material. They did have doorknobs in Romans times and door latches and things like that. But putting in his hand by the hole of the door, that would be difficult to understand I, as far as I've ever seen. Or as far as I've never seen anything to explain it in archaeology. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm just saying I've never seen it. In reference to verse 5 here, the words of the passage evoke those of Joshua Christ in the Revelation. In chapter 3 where he said, in the message to the church of the Laodiceans, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. However, in the subsequent statements of that message, Christ had assured his church that he would not be elusive, as the bride now portrays the husband here in verse 6. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved hath, had, had withdrawn himself and was gone. My soul failed when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. Because the song is also an allegory of the relationship between Yahweh God and the children of Israel as his bride, and that is substantiated once more in the verse which follows, it is not unfair to say that these words should also evoke another writing of Solomon's, a passage found in Proverbs chapter 1. But here in Proverbs... Solomon uses wisdom personified as his literary device, 
where he wrote from verse 20, Wisdom crieth without. She uttereth her voice in the streets. She crieth in the chief place of concourse, in the openings of the gates. And, and that's a reference to the fact that in the ancient world, the courts of judgment and other business conducted by the elders of a city was conducted in the gates, in, in plazas stationed near the gates of the cities so that anyone could always find the judges and the administrators of the city. In the city she utters her words, saying, How long will ye, simple ones, will ye love simplicity? And the scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit upon you. I will make known my words unto you, because I have called, and you have refused. I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded. But you have set it not all my counsel, and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear comes. When your fear comes as a desolation, and your destruction comes as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For that they hated knowledge, and did choose not the fear of Yahweh. They would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Now, in spite of the fact that the bride had already complained that she was ready for sleep, and not prepared to leave the house, thinking her lover was at the door, we see her once again wandering the streets of the city in search of her lover. This certainly also represents the wanderings of the children of Israel in their state of sin as a result of their own imaginings by which they had strayed from Yahweh, their God. So the bride goes on and says, The watchmen that went about the city found me. They smote me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took away my veil from me. As we have already asserted, it is implausible that an ancient noblewoman, especially the bride of a king, would be wandering out on the streets at night. And if she were found in that state, she certainly would not be treated that way by the men whose duty it was to guard the city. So the allegorical interpretation is indeed the correct interpretation. Even if that does not detract from the allegories describing the lovemaking of a husband and his bride. Now once again, the bride makes an announcement to the chorus. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him that I am sick of love. She is sick of love, or better, she is weak from love. Lovesick, as we might say in modern English. The chorus now answers the bride as if she should go and find another lover, which also suggests the frequent sins of the idolatrous children of Israel. In verse 9, the chorus. What is thy beloved more than another beloved? O thou fairest among women, what is thy beloved more than another beloved that thou dost so charge us, that you do so charge us, or instruct us? Now the bride answers in response, describing what may distinguish her lover from others. In this answer, both the literal aspect in relation to Solomon and the allegorical aspect in relation to God must be true and accurate. So the bride responds, My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among ten thousand. His head 
is has the most fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as a raven. The word for white here is sack. Strong's number 6703. It is defined by Strong's as dazzling, glowing, clear, or bright. And in the Brown Driver Briggs lexicon, in the Brown Driver Briggs lexicon, as dazzling, glowing, or clear. However, that reference also has a parenthetical remark that indicates that it means white in this context relating to a man's countenance. Here in this verse, in the Greek Septuagint, it was translated as Lucas, and in the Latin Vulgate as Candidus, and both words literally mean white. Now, everybody that listens to my podcasts understands that I usually don't have much respect for Jerome's Vulgate. However, it is useful in the song especially to help resolve the meanings of obscure words, especially where it may agree with the Septuagint, but it doesn't always agree with the Septuagint, as we shall see later on this evening. The word sack, T-S-A-C-H, is how Strong's transliterates it. The word only appears on three other occasions in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 18.4, where it is clear, describing the heat of the day upon plants. In Isaiah 32.4, where it is plainly in regard to a clarity of speech. And in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 11, where it is dry, used to describe a wind. The word for ruddy is the Hebrew word Adam, which is also, as a proper noun, the name of the first man in Genesis. And as a common noun, the name describing each of his descendants as man, which is actually an unfortunate translation. While there are other races of men in scripture who did not descend from Adam, many of which are mentioned in later chapters of Genesis, they may be described by other words for man, such as Enosh, but they are not Adam, and they are not described by that term. It is apparent that Adam is a term for a ruddy man, especially since the blood under his white skin is the source of his ruddiness. And the Hebrew word for blood is Adam. Another word, Adamah, which refers to reddish soil, was derived from Adam. An adjective, Adomi, as Strong's transliterates it, also describes ruddy. It also appears in contexts where ruddy is basically the only logical translation. Likewise, a head of fine gold is one that has been tanned by the sun, while the word for locks or kavutsa is an obscure word that only appears in this chapter of the song, here and in verse 2. While the root word, kots, Strong's number 6975, is a thorn or thorns in Genesis chapter 3 and Hosea chapter 10. The word for bushy or taltal is wavy or branchy. And in the Septuagint, it is translated as bastrucus which Liddell and Scott define as either a curl or a lock of hair, or anything twisted or wreathed. The word shakor is a common word for black. Another notable ancient prince, Hector of Troy, and I note this often, a hero of the Trojan War 200 years before Solomon's time, was described in Homer's Iliad, in Book 22, as having had raven hair. Now the bride continues. His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. 
His cheeks are as a bed of spices, as sweet flowers, his lips like lilies, dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. Some words were added to the text of the first clause of verse 12, where it says his eyes are as the eyes of doves. It should be simply his eyes are as doves. It reads in a New American Standard Bible, his eyes are like doves. While many such allegories in the song cannot be interpreted literally, otherwise the breasts of a woman would look like rows or gazelles. Most species of dove seem to be grayish in color. Being washed with milk seems to refer to the whiteness of the eyeball. The flowery description of the husband's cheeks once again reflects the ruddiness of his white complexion. The bride continues, His hands are as gold rings set with beryl. His belly is as bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. Hands of gold also reflect, as the head did, the tanning of the sun. And beryl also reflects something yellowish in color. A belly white like ivory, overlaid with sapphires, or inlaid with sapphires, in the New American Standard Bible, seems to describe the blue veins which show through the white skin of a man who is in an athletic physical condition since sapphires are blue. Now, some men show veins in their skin easier than others, and some men have great difficulty. A lot of that depends on how much body fat is beneath the skin. But in most men who are in decent physical condition, you can see in many places on his body the blue veins below the skin. Finished with her description, the bride now turns once again to address the chorus, as she has given this description to them. And and let me say one more thing. I'm sorry. I missed it. The sockets of gold in verse 15. I'm sorry. I skipped verse 15. Let's go back to verse 15. I must be thrown off tonight by too much, too many things, trying to do too many things at once. Verse 15, the bride states, and this is after she describes his belly as bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. His legs are as pillars of marble set upon sockets of fine gold. His countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. It sounds like he is straight and tall. His mouth is most sweet. Yeah, he is altogether lovely. Once again, a white man in good physical condition would have blue veins appear through the skin of his legs, giving them an appearance like marble. The sockets of gold would be a reference to his feet and ankles or also to his lower legs, depending on how long of a garment the man typically wore, and they would be tanned from the sun. So notice that the parts of his body, which are described as gold, are the parts which are typically exposed to the sun, where the other parts of his body are described as being white where you could see the blue veins through the whiteness. Finished with her description, the bride now turns once again to address the chorus, as she has given this description to them. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Now there might be another interpretation of the context of that. Throughout the song, each lover describes their partner as both Lover and friend. So we read in Isaiah chapter 48, speaking of Israel. But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. 
Later, in John chapter 15, Christ tells his disciples that ye are my friends if ye do whatsoever I command you. Evidently, being a wife or lover is not as extraordinary as being a wife and also being a friend. Before we commence, we must make a short statement in support of our conclusion concerning this Song of Songs. And that is, that if Solomon was a white man, which he clearly must have been from this description, then Adam was also a white man, as Solomon is his direct descendant, as it can be traced through the scriptures. Since Adam's declaration of a legitimate marriage, found in Genesis chapter 2, is that the woman would be flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, then the bride must be a white woman. Or Solomon could not have described her as a sister. Yet, in the descriptions of the bride later in the song, we shall see that she certainly was also white. Historically, it may be established that all of the Genesis 10 nations were originally white. And therefore, if one is not white, then he is not from one of those nations. He is not from of Adam. And he must be from of that other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There are no other races of men or devils accounted for in the creation account of Scripture or in the revelation of Yahshua Christ, who had come to reveal things kept secret from the foundation of the world, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 13. Now, as chapter 6 of the song opens, the chorus responds to the, to the words of the bride. Whither is thy beloved gone, O thou fairest among women? Whither is thy beloved turned aside, that we may seek him with thee? In Brenton Septuagint, but not in the Greek edition of Ralph's, this verse is numbered as verse 17 in chapter 5. So, throughout chapter 6, the verse numbers in that edition are off, and they remain so through to the end of chapter 7. Here the chorus almost seems to be challenging the bride, as though they had already tempted her to consider other lovers before she gave the description of her lover. But perhaps they accepted her description and are only eager to see him themselves. Now that she answers in reply, as though she was aware of the husband's arrival, or at least knew that his arrival was imminent, my beloved is gone down into his garden, to the beds of spices, to feed in the gardens, and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He feeds among the lilies. Once again, the garden is the bride herself. And where she states that he feeds among the lilies, that is also a reference to their sexual activity. But now the husband is present, although his appearance is not explained in an explicit manner. Perhaps he was in the process of arriving where the bride had said in the final verse of chapter 5 that this is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem, where she may have been making an introduction as he arrived, but was not yet seen by the chorus rather than merely making a reference to her description of him, which she had just given while he was still absent. So now the husband responds, Thou art beautiful, O my love, as Terzah, comely as Jerusalem, terrible, and this is a terrible translation, I'm sorry, it really is, Terrible as an army with banners. Now, Terza is a proper name, often in scripture. It's also the name of a town or place. But it means favorable. 
so it may have or possibly should have been translated here. Now, in the Septuagint, it says, Thou art fair, my companion, as pleasure. So it was translated there. It also was translated in the Latin Vulgate. as It looks like it was translated as sweet. The words, an army, were added to the text by the translators of the King James Version. The final clause is problematical, as other versions also make similar additions. The Hebrew word for banners, dagal, is a verb describing something looked at or conspicuous. But, and for that reason, for that very reason, also used to describe something bannered something from which a banner is hung, or the carrying of banners. Since ayom is an adjective, ayom, the word translated as terrible or dreadful, in the Septuagint it was translated as thambus, which means astonishing or amazing, among other things. So since ayom is an adjective, we would translate the clause to say, rather than terrible as an army with banners, it should say, as astonishing as a marvel, as comely as Jerusalem, as astonishing as a marvel. We cannot imagine that a man, at least not a man of Solomon's stature, I don't know about half the men in the world today, but we cannot imagine that a man would want a wife as dreadful as an army on the march. That would be a horrible thing to have for a wife. Now, on account of her beauty, the husband begs, Turn away thine eyes from me, for they have overcome me. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Gilead. Thy teeth are as a flock of sheep which go up from the washing, whereof every one beareth twins, and there is not one barren among them. And I'm sure everybody listening to this now will find those verses were familiar. Those verses and the verse to come. This description of the hair and teeth of the bride is nearly verbatim from when the husband had described her earlier where the lines also appear in the opening verses of song chapter 4. So now the husband continues as a piece of pomegranate are thy temples within thy locks. And this is also a reiteration of the husband's description of his lover from earlier in that same passage of Psalm chapter 4. But while the King James Version and others derived from the Masoretic text omit a description of her lips, which is found in the passage in chapter 4, here that is also repeated in the Septuagint Version. We won't repeat it here because we're following the King James Version. Once again, the word for locks is properly a veil. I don't know why it was translated as locks here, but it should be a veil. The husband continues, There are threescore queens and fourscore concubines and virgins without number. It is unclear here whether Solomon is making an allusion to the number of his own wives and concubines, as it is apparent from the historical records of Scripture that he had a great number of them, or whether he is referring to the wives and concubines of other kings, or whether he is only offering a rhetorical example, and this is not a reference to any real-world situation. But in any event, he is stating that the bride of the song is far better than them all, 
And the next verse is comparing her to these, although that is not very clear in the translation. So the husband continues after saying there are three score queens and four score concubines and virgins without number. He says, my dove, my undefiled is but one. She is the only one of her mother. She is the choice one of her that bear her. The daughters saw her and blessed her. Yeah, the queens and the concubines, and they praised her. So this woman is the undefiled one that stands out from all the others. Whether they belong to Solomon or not, we cannot tell from the short two verses from this analogy. She is the one of her mother. The phrase evokes the use of the word monogenes, or only begotten, in the New Testament. However, here, the Hebrew idiom is apparent, wherein both the Masoretic text, I should say, the meaning of the Hebrew idiom is apparent, where in both the Masoretic text and the Septuagint, a phrase which literally means one of her mother appears. In contrast, a word meaning only, rather than just one, is used where Isaac was described as Abraham's only son in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, in spite of the fact that Abraham had another son, Citing that event in chapter 11 of his epistle to the Hebrews, Paul used the term monogenes, whereby we may understand the term to refer to something special in its class, sort of like the Latin term sui generis, which many other commentators in the past had pointed out. Here Solomon is describing his bride in that same manner. It is also apparent that the daughters who are the queens and concubines, are all of the same nation or mother of the bride, if we interpret the word mother metaphorically of the nation, to refer to the nation. The husband continues in verse 10. Who is she that looks forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and Terrible as an army with banners. And of course, we just saw that last clause in verse 4. And once again, as it is a repeat of the same phrase found here in verse 4, in the phrase, terrible as an army with banners, the words for an army are not in the original language or in the Greek of the Septuagint. In the Latin Vulgate, there is a phrase, Terribilis ut Achaeus ordinata, which seems only to mean awesome as banners. Although in the Douay Reims translation, it is terrible as an army set in array. Once again, we would translate the Hebrew to say as astonishing as a marvel or perhaps as a wonder or as amazing as a wonder or anything similar to that. The word for fair, yafeth, yafeth, y-a-p-h-e-h is how Strong's transliterates it, means fair or beautiful, or even handsome or pleasant, depending on the context, without any connotation of race or color. However, where the fairness of the bride is compared to the moon, and her clarity for the sun, as the word for clear is the same word, tzak, which is sometimes translated as dazzling, or white, as it was in relation to the husband here in Song chapter 5, verse 10. We see that her countenance must be both white and bright, because the face of the sun is bright, so that word sack can be translated dazzling there also.
and the face of the moon is clearly white. Now the bride seems to be speaking in response to the husband. In verse 11, I went down into the garden of nuts to see the fruits of the valley and to see whether the vine flourished and the pomegranates budded or ever I was aware my soul made me like the chariots of Aminadib. And there is also obscure language here. Where we read in verse 12, or ever I was aware. In the Septuagint we see an exclamation where the bride promises that there I will give you my breasts. That version seems to be alone in that reading. As the Latin agrees with the Masoretic text, and so does the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible, which continues from the scroll designated 4Q Canticles A, from where it resumes in this very verse, verse 11 in this chapter. The first part of the verse is actually missing. The first part of verse 11 is actually missing in that scroll, but it continues from the middle of verse 11. The phrase, chariots of Aminadib, is certainly obscure, as the word appears only here in scripture. However, there is a man named Aminadab, which in the Hebrew of the Masoretic text, wants the macabre symbol separating the syllables, as well as one letter. Aminadab was an ancestor of David and Solomon. And he was captain of the hosts of Judah at the numbering of the children of Israel on the plains of Moab. In the Septuagint, the reading is Aminadab and in the Latin Vulgate, which in both cases in those languages, Greek and Latin, is the same spelling as the name is virtually, I should say, the same spelling as the name of Solomon's ancestor wherever he is mentioned. Therefore, we might be, and I say might because I followed this route and it was plausible until I studied the matter a little deeper, but I felt it worthy to comment upon we might be tempted to amend this text to be a reference to him. But the children of Israel did not have chariots in the time of Aminadab, or at least if they did, it is never mentioned in the book of Numbers, or even in the time of Joshua. So Aminadab would not have been noted as a charioteer. But evidently, it is the bride who is speaking these words. And the chariots of Pharaoh were mentioned by the husband earlier in the song. The alternate reading of Aminadib, which is said to mean my willing people, the alternate reading of Aminadib provided in some lexicons, which is said to mean my willing people, seems to be nonsense. However, the reading of the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible is not, as it translates Aminadib, with a small a, as my noble people, and renders the verse to read, Before I realized it, my fancy placed me among the chariots of my noble people. So, following the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible, we would prefer to read verse 12 in that fashion. In Brenton's Septuagint, the following verse, 13, is found in the opening of chapter 7, as verse 1. The meaning of this verse is also obscure, although it appears that it is spoken by the chorus, and that is how we shall interpret it. I am persuaded that the statement made by the bride, that her fancy had placed her among the chariots of her noble people, is not to be taken literally but rather that it is an allegory for how she felt when the husband takes her away, as we shall see in the opening verses of chapter 7 of the song. 
So as he takes her away, the chorus cries out, Return, return, O Shulamite. Return, return, that we may look upon thee. The word Shulamite is said in the lexicons to have no gender. But the verbs and other words which are feminine in their form in this passage seem to indicate that the epithet is describing the bride and the reference is a call for her to return. The word Shulamite, or Shulamith as it's transliterated by Strong, is said by Strong's to mean the perfect or the peaceful one. However, it is not defined in the entry in the Brown Driver Briggs lexicon, at least the entry provided by the BibleWorks version 10 software. It was not translated in the Sethrogen or in the Vulgate. But I must agree with Strong's, who gives the root of the appellation, it's an appellation for a woman, for the woman, to be from Shalom, Strong's number 7999, which means to be complete or friendly or at peace. So therefore, Shulamite can mean friendly one, peaceful one, or in the sense of being complete, perfect one, as Strong's had said. Now the chorus seems to be beckoning to the husband. What will you see in the Shulamite? in the perfect one, as he takes her away. Next, at the end of the final verse of the chapter, as the King James Version has it, the husband begins to answer the question, but we shall offer our own version at the beginning of chapter 7. So in the King James Version, the husband is made to answer, as it were, the company of two armies. And that is absolute nonsense. This phrase should be moved to the beginning of the first sentence of verse 1 in chapter 7 and rendered like a dance of two camps. And I will establish that next week. So we shall resume at that point when we return to Complete our commentary on the Song of Songs. Actually, it may be the week after next. This evening, we offered our conclusion regarding what we had learned from the song up to this point. But it is not yet the conclusion of the song itself. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Thank you for listening. And good night.